If you've ever wondered what one of my sermons would sound like after I only slept for an hour the night before, you've come to the right place. I made it through first hour, so I've never fallen asleep while preaching. I've seen some of you sleep while I've been preaching, but I've never fallen asleep, so I'll try not to do that. I think it was Jay Adams, the author, who used to say, let's make it, let's make a deal. I, you, you don't preach during my sermons and I won't preach in your bedroom. I thought it was kind of funny. People first hour thought it was kind of funny too. I'm not sure why you didn't, but (laughs) it won't be a, the sermon won't be a yawner, not because of me, but because of the fact that we're looking at one of the greatest sermons ever preached. Uh, this sermon has been downloaded more than any other sermon, even before there were downloads. And that would be the sermon in Acts chapter 2 that Peter preaches on the day of Pentecost. And so if you have a Bible, you can find Acts chapter 2 for that famous sermon. Certainly one of the greatest. I wouldn't call it the greatest. Hebrews is a sermon, so um, there's that one. And Acts chapter 2 doesn't record the whole sermon. So let's call it one of the greatest sermons ever preached. Hopefully you found that by now or getting close. I I feel compelled to pray yet again. Father, thank you for this morning once again. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to be refreshed by what is true and beautiful and lasting and that will matter forever. And so we would ask with the psalmist that you would open our eyes spiritually so that we would behold wonderful things from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So it's Acts chapter 2. We're going to look at verses 14 and following. We won't make it all the way through to the end of the chapter, but we will make it all the way through the sermon. And so I hope you're ready for this. Uh, It's exciting. It's compelling. It's masterful. Uh, Let's look at the first two words at least. It says in verse 14, but Peter, but Peter in contrast to the people who are accusing the Christians of being drunk at nine in the morning, because something on the day of Pentecost, that great celebration that caused Jerusalem to be filled with people, teeming with people, because it's a great celebration. It's a great time of remembering God's faithfulness. Let's remember the great harvest. Well, and then they heard the, they, they witnessed the supernatural, that people were speaking in their dialects, true things about God. Remember, it's called uh, the mighty deeds of God. And yet these are dialects that the people just moments before didn't know. And so it has everyone's attention. Something extraordinary is happening here. Something unique is happening here. And the doubters are going to say, well, maybe they've just been drinking this morning. Well, okay. But Peter, by way of contrast, standing with the eleven, that would be the other apostles, lifted up his voice and addressed them. This great group of celebrators, Day of Pentecost Festival who'd been speaking the mighty deeds of God. He says there, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. And notice there, I want you to know something with your intellect. He's not asking them to feel something. Feelings are good. They're from God. 
but he's not asking them to, to feel something subjectively that could be open to everyone's unique interpretation. No, he says, let this be known. I want you to comprehend with your minds turned on something. And give ear to my words. Listen carefully to what I'm going to say about objective, verifiable reality. Verse 15 then says, For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. And then, get this, verse 16. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel... Verse 17, and in the last days it shall be, and I have to stop for a moment after the comma and say, oh my. I, I have to say, just reading that, what? Seriously? What in the world? Is he, is he making that connection? Now I realize you might not be quite with me yet, but let me explain to you why I'm saying, oh my. Seriously? Is he, is he making that connection? Because notice what Peter says. This, verse 16, and then connect in verse 17. No, let, let's connect this. In verse 16, this is. So I would, if, you're, if you have a Bible, you can draw upon or underline or something. This is in verse 16. Then in verse 17, the last days. That captures the idea of what he's saying. This is, dot, 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 if you will, just for the sake of seeing what he's doing. This is, dot, 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 the last days. According to Joel's prophecy, Joel chapter 2, and we're going to read that in just a second. But before we get to it, he's going to quote Joel 2, and he says, This is, this what, this what we're, this supernatural thing that we've experienced. Hearing people in Dialects that they hadn't spoken before about the mighty deeds of God. This is proof, if you will. This is the Joel 2 prophesied last days. Now, some Christians don't realize that we've been living in the last days since Jesus was here. And so you might even hear right now with big, big items on the world uh, wide scope right now, people saying, does this mean we're getting close to the last days? Well, people who say that, and if you say that, I'm glad you're here. You came to the right place. But people who say things like that are the kind of people who say, well, I like the book of Revelations. Well, you might not, you must not like the book of Revelations too much because there's no such thing in the Bible. There is no book of Revelations in the Bible. There's the book of Revelation. The Revelation. Well, we're in the last days. We've been in the last days since Jesus was here. Peter, on good authority, <laughs> says this is the last days. This is fulfillment of what Joel 2 prophesied. What you've all seen here, these folks speaking the mighty deeds of God supernaturally in your dialect, a dialect they didn't know moments before, this is the unique outpouring of the Spirit. This is the unique, extraordinary event to say, something's different now. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. So it's not just in one passage. 
It's in numerous passages, actually. So let's just remember, you know, kind of 101 learning about end times. We're in the end times. We've been in the end times since Jesus was here. I didn't always know this in my Christian life. Maybe you don't know this. Again, came to the right place. But we need to know that we've been living in the last time since Jesus was here. That doesn't mean Jesus, it doesn't mean the second coming's happened. No, we're not saying that. But these are the last times. And they've been the last times by proof of Acts chapter 2. Now, before we go any further, and I promise sometimes we'll go faster today. I've had enough caffeine to go faster. It's just, it's just on the, it's just on the back burner waiting. Two, two big mistakes we make in Christians, as Christians in Christian history. We, we want to avoid these mistakes. And so sometimes people, and I'm going to use big theological words because some of you come here and pay double just to hear them. Okay. Thankfully, you don't have to know big theological words to go to heaven. You just have to trust in the perfect work of Christ to go to heaven. But on the one extreme, let's call it an over-realized eschatology. Eschatology is a study of the end, the last days, eschatology, okay? So there's an over-realized eschatology and there's an under-realized eschatology. Boy, you're going to be able to amuse your friends this afternoon, aren't you? Big, big labels, but they actually matter. If you have an over-realized view of the end, you'd say wrong things like the second coming's already happened. The second coming hasn't already happened. And the Apostle Paul actually elsewhere talks about people who, who are false teachers because they say things like that. So the end, the, the end end, if you will, hasn't happened. We're waiting for that. Or people who say, well, you're never going to get sick. Um, you're never going to die. In, in effect, they're saying you're already glorified. That's, a, that's an over-realized view of the end. That's going to happen, but it hasn't happened. It's sure to happen, but it hasn't happened yet under-realized eschatology would, would be to the extreme. You, could, you, you just can't know if you're going to go to heaven or not. Maybe if your good outweighs your bad, you can do enough good works to be justified. Well, that, that's unbiblical because the Bible, the Bible says, that's unbiblical because the Bible says, if you have faith in Jesus now, you've been justified. The, the end times judgment whether it's, it's going to be condemnation or justification, is a present reality in your life if you're trusting in the finished work of Christ. Read Romans chapter 8, verse 1. So we have assurance about the final day of judgment because of the finished work of Christ. And so we don't have an under-realized eschatology. Hopefully we have a right view of the end. Another perspective on that would be if you say, well, we're waiting for the end times. No, we're in the end times. Too many times I've had maybe an under-realized eschatology in the sense that we're waiting for the end times. Watch the news. Maybe it'll come sometime. It's not the idea you get from Peter. Peter is saying, as some of your translations say, this is that. Or Hebrews chapter 1. In these last days, he's spoken to us through his son. So as we think about the end, we're already in the end times. Yes, we're awaiting the ultimate end from a place of security because we're in Christ. But when are, are we in the kingdom? Well, there's an ultimate coming kingdom. We're waiting for the Jerusalem from above. 
and yet we are citizens of the kingdom. Is Jesus ruling and reigning? Kind of a trick question. It has to do with your view of eschatology. Is he ruling and reigning? Well, Peter's going to argue that he's ascended and he's the one who occupies David's throne. So then, do I need to talk about this a little bit more? This is why theologians and thoughtful Bible scholars, and by the way, everybody's a theologian. We either have good theology or bad theology or somewhere in between. We want it to be getting better. This is why we we have to come up with categories like already and not yet. You won't find it in a Bible search, but Christ is ruling. He ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father. That's ruling talk. But at the same time, he will return in glory. Every knee will bow, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, and he'll be ruling and reigning in a different sort of way, if you will. Okay, I know that's an aside, but Peter is saying, so we need to understand, because of the virtue of what Jesus did, this is the end. Jesus is, in other words, here's why it's important. Jesus is central. He's the centerpiece of it all. And we in the here and now can know that and appreciate that. Okay, hope I didn't lose too many of you here. Um, let's keep moving now. We're in the last days, according to Peter. And then let's keep going in verse 17, where he quotes Joel. God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. And if you look at verses 17 and 18, you have to say, what's he getting at? All different kinds of people. Young and old and male and female and those who are in significant positions and lesser positions, they're all going to do this. And Peter's connecting the dots. This extraordinary thing that you've all just witnessed, some of you said it's because they were drunk. I want you to know it, it wasn't normal. Like being drunk is not normal. It wasn't normal because this is that. The, 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 the ultimate has arrived. The ultimate has arrived in that Christ has come and he's poured out his spirit according to prophecy. 19 says, and I will show wonders in the heavens above and the signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor and and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. So, yeah, there's there's ultimate end in view there, but there are things that come before ultimate end. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus died, according to Luke 23, 44 to 45, you had such a darkness over the earth? One commentator put it this way, a commentator that I appreciate very much. This is Dennis Johnson. The darkening of the sun had shown that on the cross, the Messiah was enduring the last day judgment for his people. I think... Mr. Johnson is on to something there. Well, sometimes we make this mistake. We become enamored with the anticipatory. I don't think I've ever said that word before in my life. Is that a word? I think it's a word. Anticipatory. Um, Last hour we had an English teacher on the front row, so that helped. (sighs) Or hurt. (laughs) 
the anticipatory, in anticipation. Sometimes we focus on those things as if they're key, as if, as if they're the exclamation point, as if they're the ultimate. No, there are going to be these things that are authentic, that are important, that are significant, that Peter's original audience had just witnessed. But they're not the end game because look, all of that is just to get ready for the end game. Here's the end game. 21. And it shall come to pass. This is what we've been waiting for. This is what human history has been waiting for. Even if human history hasn't known, it's been waiting for it. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You want to know why all these things have been happening? Because human history has been waiting for this. For this great time to come where anyone and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're close to Jerusalem or far off to the ends of the earth, remember the Great Commission, who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All of these things have just happened before your eyes, he's saying to his audience, so that you will have, so it will have your attention. This is the dawning of the new era where God saves anybody and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. That's what's happening. It's exciting. That's the key point. Now, I, I want to be super kind of basic here, kind of one of those, um, like the famous football coach Vince Lombardi of the Green Bay Packers, when supposedly he said, this is a football to his players, uh, as if they didn't know it was a football. So to be super basic here, because sometimes we forget the basics, Lord means king. And it's really an overlap. You, you all, you can, you can separate them for study, but there's overlap for Messiah. There's overlap for Christ. I know they are different, but they're, they're, they're intentionally overlapping words. And here's what lords and messiahs did in the first century. They delivered from danger. They provided, they met needs. And the best lords, met the most needs. They also, Messiah, Deliverer, King, Lords, they also kept you from the danger of enemies. They provided for you. They did all those kind of things. The best ones. If you see Jesus as the Lord, you see him as the long-expected, anticipated Lord, King, Messiah, deliverer. And Peter's going to preach that way. Christians believe that Jesus is the Lord of Lords. He's the ultimate deliverer. See, that word he uses even to be saved. It's a great word. I love it. I love to use it often. Christians talk about being saved. But sometimes maybe we even forget what that means. Delivered. Provided for. Protected. That we can be saved from God's judgment that we can be saved from sin, that we can be saved from condemnation, that we can have all of our spiritual needs met forever. So the great announcement isn't, look at all this crazy stuff that's happening. No, look at all the crazy stuff that's happening, the extraordinary stuff, because God has, through Old Testament history, done what I'm calling crazy stuff, 
sometimes to get people's attention because something extraordinary is going to happen, like the giving of the law. And here, crazy stuff has happened, like speaking in these dialects that they didn't know before. And get, get attention is now gotten. What's happening? This is what we've been waiting for. When anyone and everyone who calls on the name of, in context, Jesus, seeing him as Lord, will have all of their needs met, will be delivered, will be protected, will be provided for forever and ever. That's what's going on. It's awesome. It's great. And we're just getting into it. It's remarkable. Verse 22 says, men of Israel. Now we, we have already seen he's addressing everyone. Probably here he's singling out the men, not because he's sexist, because he's really going to go after the leaders. The leaders, yes, they represent the people, but the leaders, he's really going to go after them pretty hardcore before he tells them the good news. But he's going to go after them because they are the ones who officially demanded Jesus' crucifixion. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth. That, that's very important. In other words, I'm addressing all of you here and I want you to know who I'm talking about. Jesus who grew up in Nazareth. The town you all frown on, but you all know the town. And you all know that Jesus was the son of a carpenter. You, you, you guys all know. Everybody who I'm talking, talking to here in the, Original audience, you all know who I'm talking about. This is not a phantom. This is not an imaginary figure. Jesus of Nazareth. It's not the right place to grow up according to their views. John chapter 1 verse 46. But you all know who I'm talking about. You, you all know his address. You all know his zip code before there were zip codes. But you get the idea. I'm stressing that because historical figure real person. Peter's preaching about the authenticity of Christianity. I have to stop there just for a moment and acknowledge and point out there's the big takeaway here in all of this. I should have given it to you in my introduction. I'll give it to you now. Christianity is true. It's true. It's not true in your heart, true. It's historically true. It's not true in religion, so-called, but it doesn't have to be true factually. What the Apostle Peter is doing here, and I'm going to try to echo it, is Christianity is true. Peter is not going to say, I want you all to take it on faith. He's not going to do that. He's going to give and spell out the real Jesus of history. You know, Jesus of Nazareth. And he's going to call them to believe. Yes, belief is important. Faith is important. Believe in the real, true, genuine, authentic, historical one. That's the whole, that's what all of this is driving at. And I think this is important because most unbelievers I know think that we Christians think, and lots of Christians I know talk as if Christians think, 
that all of Christianity is about, well, just take it, take, take us on faith. Don't take me on faith regarding anything. Oh, don't get me wrong. I would like you to have faith in the real historic factual one who's not a phantom, who is Jesus of Nazareth. Notice a man, not a weird phantom spirit being where you can't find his home where he grew up. No, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God, accompanied by God. He wasn't just a big talker on the playground. Attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. Oh, you know, like in the Old Testament. That's right. Like in the Old Testament, when big, extraordinary things happen, like the giving of the law. Let's keep reading. That God did through him in your midst. See, notice, this is why I want to underscore the, the historicity. In your midst, your eyewitnesses. This is a public figure to be objectively verified and analyzed. Peter's not saying just take faith on faith, in faith. As you yourselves know. I just can't stress it enough. As you know, you know who he is. Eyewitness kind of stuff. You you know who he is. I'm going to call you to believe in him. It's not, well, I want you to read this and once you get this weird kind of subjective burning in your bosom or something, like Joseph Smith said, that's how you know the Book of Mormon is true. Christianity is a different religion than that kind of religion. It's in a totally different category. Peter just keeps stressing again and again and again, and I'm going to do the same thing because we could do a better job here. It doesn't mean everybody who hears us is going to be converted. Don't get me wrong. They're not all going to be converted. But make no mistake about it, biblical, authentic, genuine, historic Christianity is about faith, trust in Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, as you yourselves know. He's not asking him to take it on faith. I'm not going to ask anybody to take it on faith. Jesus isn't a phantom. 23 says, This Jesus, this Jesus, he's going to use that with some repetition. I like it. He's going to use it in verse 32. He's going to use it in verse 36. This Jesus, the Jesus not of imagination or bogus folklore. This Jesus delivered up as in to be crucified according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So it's bad what you did to him, but it's according to God's purposeful, sovereign decree and design. You crucified and killed. Remember, he's looking right in particular men of Israel. Maybe everyone else is cowering behind them. I don't know. By the hands of lawless men. We won't take a long time with it today, but it's so fascinating and interesting the way Peter knows. Peter's a good enough theologian to know how, how nuance is important. To look him in the eye and say, you are guilty. You've done an awful thing. Handing him over to the Romans to be executed. Oh, but make no mistake about it. And he's going to get to the prophecies. It wasn't by bad luck that Jesus died. 
It was according to purpose. In other words, God does use sinful human beings in a broken, sin-cursed world to, co- to accomplish his greater purposes. And, and Peter understands how to do that. We could, we could learn from Peter here. And then by way of contrast, God raised him up. So you, sinful actions and intentions, reminds me of Genesis 50. God, but by contrast, God raised him up. Loosing the pangs or the severe sufferings of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. I need a breath before we talk about this. Just just to, to ever so quickly review. He's giving them facts, 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 facts. Facts don't change sinful human hearts. But God does use facts, true facts, and he's going to call them to trust in the factual one, the Lord Jesus Christ. We've got to keep that in mind. If, if I could stand on my head to get your attention better, I would do it. If I could do the splits, my pants wouldn't last. But I, I could do that, but it would be ridiculous in a sermon. But Jesus, they all there knew him to be a local. And they're also, we're going to see, eyewitness, they're eyewitnesses of the resurrection. So they've seen him from beginning to end, even the mighty deeds. He's calling them to believe upon the believable. Christianity calls people, sinners like you and like me, to believe upon, to trust in the believable one. Makes Christianity different from every religion really does. Some of us are supposed to be in Israel this week. Uh, as much as I love being with you all today, I wish I was with some of you uh, in Israel this week. And I bring it up because, oh my, could I use a shawarma sandwich right about now. If we were just strolling down Ben Yehuda Street in the new city, not the new Jerusalem, but it's the new city in Jerusalem, the old Jerusalem. Oh, it'd be so good. Anyway, I digress. I bring it up because one reason I like to go to Israel is not because it's a, what do you call it when you're going to take a trip and it's spiritual significance. What's the word for that? Pilgrimage. Thank you. Told you it was only one hour. It's not for a pilgrimage. It's not to bow down and worship the things like you'll see if you go to Israel. But I do like to remind people that we're visiting a place the place on planet Earth, the same planet we're on when we're in Omaha, Nebraska, where Jesus of Nazareth earned salvation for you. It's a great reminder. It's a great reminder. Our faith isn't in faith. Our faith isn't a resurrected Savior. Nobody like Him. Nobody. No religion like authentic Christianity. It's reasonable to believe. Okay, I got my breath. Just thinking about shawarma gave me the calories that I need, the mental calories. 
it was impossible in verse 24, or it was not possible for him to be held by it. So, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Now what's going to happen is, is masterful Bible interpretation by somebody who knows a thing or two about Bible interpretation, the Apostle Peter, trained by Jesus, and he's going to show you from the Bible why Jesus couldn't stay dead. And he's going to draw upon the great patriarch, the great Messiah, because he's a Christ, because he's a king, David. But before we go there, oh, let's go ahead and go for it. Let's do it. No, I don't want you to be shortchanged. Okay, so, so. Yeah, we better move on. My multiple personalities are getting in the way of clarity or something. Try living with me. Okay. Here's proof, verse 25. For David says, that, that just got all the Jewish audience's uh, attention, or it should have. For David, great, special, unique. David says concerning him, now he's going to quote Psalm 16, Messianic Psalm. I saw the Lord always before me. Da- David says that? I thought he was a king. I thought he was a Lord. I saw the Lord always before me. For he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. That is my body in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or the grave or let your Holy One see corruption. Hmm. Let's keep going. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. So presence, life, no corruption, not abandoned to Hades. That's, that's wonderful. That's, that's great. That sounds like he's talking about Jesus. But it's a Davidic psalm. Well, let's keep reading. What, Pete, what does Peter say? Verse 29. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence, about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. How about that? David had such great hope, but everyone here today, the audience he's addressing, knows full well that David had a funeral and he's still dead. And you can go visit his tomb. So how in the world could this psalm be true? Well, it could be true one way. If there's a greater Messiah, if there's a greater anointed one, if there's a greater Lord, 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 10, then David slept, which is a nice way of saying he died. He slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. He's a great king. Maybe the best of Israel's kings. But he died and he's still dead. So how does Psalm 16 work? Oh, I, I, I have a potential answer if I'm in the audience. Solomon. Great King Solomon. First Kings chapter 11, verse 43. And Solomon slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David, his father. You see, Peter's using facts 
kind of facts on fire. That's what someone told me once that the good preaching is. Preaching is logic on fire. Peter's doing logic on fire. He's got his Bible open and he's saying, look, let me show you how these things all connect. This is extraordinary. This is amazing. 30, verse 30 says, being therefore a prophet. He's talking about David, somebody who speaks God's truth. This is 2 Samuel 23, 2 kind of talk. Therefore, being a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that's covenant talk, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, Second Samuel 7, Davidic covenant, 31, he, David, foresaw and spoke about the, seriously? About the resurrection of the Messiah, the anointed one, the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. (laughs) You You cannot fault Peter for being irrational. You cannot fault him for being illogical. And what's amazing is, a whole lot of people are going to go, Oh, yeah, in just a little while. This is wonderful. This is like it's according to plan or purpose. Wink, wink. 32 says, this Jesus. This Jesus. Remember, that's a pattern. This Jesus. The one you know is from Nazareth. This Jesus. The one David talked about. This Jesus, 32 says, God raised up. And of that we are, we all are witnesses. Again. I'm not, if you, if I'm Peter, I'm not asking you to take it on faith. We're talking about history. This Jesus. Now have faith in him as your savior and you will be saved. Then it says in verse 33, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God. That's ascension. That's chapter one. If you're exalted, if you're exalted to the right hand of God, that's ruling and reigning kind of talk. And having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So that Spirit that was given to the Son, He pours out. Therefore, you want to know why all that stuff happened in chapter 1 and earlier in chapter 2? That's extraordinary. It's because Jesus is the prophesied ultimate Davidite or David-eyed, whichever one you'd prefer. He's the one. Okay, he gives another line of scriptural defense. I hope you're finding this at least as fascinating as I am. I used to be afraid of Acts chapter 2. I don't know why. Not afraid of it anymore. Now I'm I'm afraid to, to not go there. Connecting the dots for us. Verse 34, for David did not ascend into the heavens. So I notice I wasn't making up the ascension talk in verse 33. David did not ascend into the heavens. So we are talking about ascension, but he himself says, now Psalm 110, the Lord said to my Lord, how about that? David, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. So, so 
Peter could, in effect, say that if David were standing right next to me, he would agree with what I'm saying. And he could say that because he's getting it from Psalm 110. David himself talked about the Lord saying to my Lord. David himself knew that he couldn't be the one. David himself knew that it couldn't be Solomon. Wow. Then 36 says, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain. And that actually is an important word to Dr. Luke who's writing this account. In Luke chapter 1 verse 4, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. So I want you to know about the facts in enough detail so you don't have to waver in your own mind about whether or not you're having faith in faith or faith in facts. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ, Lord and Messiah, this Jesus. Notice again, this Jesus whom you crucified. It's great. Death couldn't hold him because he's the one that David prophesied about. He's the one. He's the one to fulfill the Davidic covenant. And if you fulfill the Davidic covenant according to the promise in the Old Testament, you rule and reign forever. Now, as a, as a quick footnote where I wavered back and forth before, but I missed my opportunity, so I'm going to bring it up now. We could also add further elaboration here on why he couldn't stay dead. He couldn't stay dead because he has to be the forever ruling and reigning ultimate one who comes in the line of David. He has to be the ultimate king, provider, savior, Messiah. But we would also acknowledge theologically and biblically, Jesus can't stay dead because he never sinned. And not only did he never sin, in chapter 3 of Acts, he's called the righteous one. So not only did he never sin, he always did the right thing. He always obeyed God's law. And I just want to remind you of the basics of how sin works. Sin is the cause of what? A lot of things. <laughs> But if we go back to Genesis 3, sin, Genesis 1, 2, 3, sin leads to death. If we go to Romans chapter 6, the wages of sin is death. So sin brings death. Jesus not only never sinned, which is what brings death, Jesus always did the right thing. And so Jesus died as our substitute in our place to bear our sins. But as Jesus the perfect Righteous one being raised from the dead. There's another angle on it. He couldn't stay dead. In fact, even by his resurrection, it was proof. The apostle Paul will argue elsewhere that he is Jesus Christ, the righteous. And as a takeaway for you and for me, that's why we want him to be our savior. Because if you trust in Jesus, he's your savior. You're united to him. You receive Christ and all of his benefits, including resurrection. This is why I have full confidence that anyone and everyone who trusts in Christ, no matter what, will be raised because Jesus was raised. 
Yeah, but what if I'm not good enough? Jesus Christ, the righteous. It's why we, it's one of the reasons why we love the resurrection of Jesus. He couldn't stay dead. He couldn't stay dead because he's the Davidic king. He couldn't stay dead because he's Jesus the righteous. He couldn't stay dead because he himself never sinned. We better keep moving. Verse 37 says, Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Obvious figure of speech. A severe figure of speech though, right? They really felt it. They were, they were internally stirred, convicted, felt pain, turmoil. And said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Great. Awesome. Right? That's what you, that's what you want them to be asking. So, so how do we respond to this? I mean, Peter's been looking at, staring them down. You did this. Okay. Now, what should we do? I'll take an opportunity again. If this were Peter's private or the apostle's private religious experience, he would need to say something like, well, I I can't really tell you. This has been my experience. Or maybe you should just do whatever you feel led to do. Whatever you want to make of this. No, because Peter knows Jesus not only did he come to earth and do great things, he explained the meaning of the great things. So Peter is going to authoritatively tell them what to do. I think if, if, if we're not talking about the historicity, if we're not talking about the real deal, who gives him the right to tell anybody what to do? Who gives you or me the right to tell anybody what to do? But if we're talking about the historic Jesus, the one who came here uniquely, lived uniquely, died uniquely, was raised from the dead uniquely, and spoke clearly enough to make it all make sense, we're going to tell people what to do. Peter is going to tell them what to do, and we can be thankful for that. 38 says, And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's not always the way he's going to say it. It's not always the way the Apostle Paul will say it in the book of Acts. But they're always in essence saying the same thing. You've got to be in a right relationship with the Lord and the Lord who saves. It's always the answer. And it is Jesus of Nazareth. It is Jesus who is the Messiah. It is Jesus who is the Christ. And you've been fundamentally, categorically, absolutely wrong about him to the point where his original audience called for his crucifixion. On their best days, they might have said he was a prophet. On their best days, they might have said some true things about him. But eventually, they'd had enough. Crucify him. And Peter says, you know what you need to do? You need to repent. You've committed this atrocious sin. You are 
needing to acknowledge your spiritual wrongness about Christ and repent. It's the other side of the coin, if you will, of faith. If you're repenting, you're believing. And if you're believing, you're repenting. Sometimes he'll say believe. Sometimes he'll say repent. Here he says repent. Makes sense to us. If you're wrong about Jesus and now you understand who Jesus is, you're going to believe in him, but you're also going to repent. But notice, and then he says, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. So you have a sin problem. The only way to deal with your sin problem is through Jesus, repenting as it would relate to him. And also, you should be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't always say it that way. But you know one thing that's going to show you're trusting in Christ in this context is if you're willing to be ceremonially washed in the name of Jesus who is from Nazareth. Everybody knows that. As Messiah? It's an act of believing in effect or a demonstration of the act of believing. Which is why elsewhere he'll say believe. So baptisms aren't unique to Christianity. Washings aren't unique to Christianity. If uh, In Judaism they have all kinds uh, of washings. Uh, you can talk about mikvahs. And you're going to go down for cleansing and come up on the other side. And uh, physically clean because you've come to Jerusalem for a festival. But also symbolically spiritually clean. You, you need to be cleansed, if you will, not just according to a Jewish washing. In the name of, how does he say it? Jesus, ultimate David. Jesus, fulfiller of the Davidic covenant. Because it's Jesus Messiah, because Christ is Messiah. That's what he says. Radical change of perspective and demeanor is what he's calling for as far as their salvation is concerned. We could talk about the ins and outs of how to properly translate this. And uh, even someone who disagrees with me about baptism says, properly translated, the, the word for should be with a view to. That's because the person knows that interchangeably throughout the book of Acts, you don't always say it that way. So to build a doctrine of baptismal regeneration doesn't work here. According to context, you get the idea. That's why sometimes it's faith, sometimes it's repentance. And you know what? If you're willing to be baptized, you're showing that you believe in Jesus. Notice it's for every one of you. How about verse 39? For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Jew and non-Jew. This sounds Old Testament, Isaiah 57, 19-ish. If we look later to the New Testament, this is Ephesians 2-ish. Or in Acts 22, it's Acts 22-ish. But what I want to stress is universal, as in all different kinds of people. This is for you. This is for you if you're older. This is for you if you're younger. This is for you if you're Jewish. This is for you if you're on the other side of the planet from Jerusalem. This is for everyone who trusts in Him. Everyone whom the Lord our God calls 
to himself. Verse 40, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. That, that statement right there, it, a lot of what happens in the book of Acts is dot, dot connecting Old Testament to New Testament. Uh, almost in a sense proving that Christianity isn't this like out of nowhere new religion. No, it's fulfillment religion. It's this is what the Old Testament prophesied. Let's connect the dots and this is that. Save yourselves from a crooked and perverse generation. Oh, oh that that's the way the Old Testament sometimes spoke to the people who were supposed to believe the Bible but weren't doing what it said or weren't listening. Deuteronomy chapter 32 verse 5 is an example. He's calling them out who are part of the right religion even to have a fundamental radical perspective on who their savior is. I do kind of, we, I, I shouldn't stall out on it too long here, but save yourselves. That would be a, that'd be kind of an intriguing, um, thing to do if you wanted to start a new religion. If I were going to start a new religion, um, I probably don't have any plans to do that. But, um, man, I would find as many Bible verses out of context that could support my case. The religion of Patianity kind of has a ring to it. Um, the save yourself religion. It's right there in the Bible. Oh, I could get a following, I know. I bet I, I could drive a... Never mind. Save yourselves. Well, no, but we read the Bible in context. He's already told them how to be saved. The way to be saved is to call on the name of the Lord. The way to be saved is to, to trust in Christ. Repent and, and, and unite yourself to Him. He's already made Himself patently clear. Yes, what a great thing. Save yourself. And how do you do that? By looking to Christ. In verse 22, shall be saved. So it's, it's passive. Verse 47, we're being saved. It's passive. So we read the Bible in context. 41 says, so those who received his word were baptized and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Just that day. It reminds me of the fact that this is Pentecost. If you recall from last time, and if you don't because you weren't here, you just don't remember, I'll remind you, Pentecost, the great festival of remembering God's abundant provision when it comes to a harvest, food. Let's remember how good God has been to help us with our farming, to provide all of the necessary things to come together so that we can have a bountiful harvest and feed our families. Pentecost. Well, that Jewish festival, as I mentioned last time, anticipated not a physical harvest, but a spiritual harvest. And here, first day, outpouring of the Spirit, 3,000 people here, Peter's pretty in-your-face sermon and respond in faith in Christ. It's a great harvest, a great spiritual harvest. Remember Jesus talked about some, such a thing. And here we see it. Here we see it. Next we're going to get into responses, but we don't have time 
today to get into the responses. Well, maybe we do. There are no more services, but the first hour folks would feel cheated if we went any further. So um, we're going to stop there. We're going to get into the, some of the earliest responses. But before we do, as a reminder, it's for good reason that Peter is going to say sometimes offensive things to our culture like this. There is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. Acts 4.12. He's not doing that because he's in a bad mood. He's not doing that to be purposely offensive. But when you have the one who provides salvation for anyone and everyone, it's very inclusive. In God's purpose and plan, it's through his one and only son. And objectively, historically, factually, he's the one and he's the only one who has the power over sin and death. That's why I would say believe in Jesus. And it's why I would tell anyone and everyone, you must believe in Jesus. You need to believe in Jesus, which is what the Great Commission actually calls us to do of all ethnos, all different kinds of people from all different kinds of religions. You need to believe in Jesus because he's the one and only ultimate Messiah, Savior, Deliverer, Provider. Father, thank you so much for today and thank you for a great sermon like this from the Apostle Peter. And we're thankful to witness it even today through history. Help these men and women and boys and girls to not have hard hearts And I guess help is an understatement. Supernaturally work in our hearts so that we would not have calloused hearts, but hearts that are soft to the gospel so that we would be responding in faith and not in opposition. Only you can do such a thing, but we would ask that you would. In Jesus' name, amen. May the Lord bless you as you go. Have a wonderful day.